I just encourage people to, to go back to actually thinking about the quality of the food itself instead of assessing and determining whether you're going to eat that food based on its carb or its fat or its protein content. Really, it's the overall quality of the food that's important. You're listening to The Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find a huge range of online and face-to-face courses, accredited for CECs and other continuing education points, with up to a massive 40% discount for members of Australian Fitness Network. In this episode, nutrition scientist and dietitian Dr. Joanna McMillan talks saturated fats and coconut oil, the low-fat versus low-carb farce, the war on sugar, and how paleo and vegan diets have more in common than we might realise, with Network's Rachel Livingston. Welcome to the Fitness Industry Podcast. Today I'm talking with Dr. Joanna McMillan, nutrition scientist, dietitian, health presenter, author and founder of Get Lean, a lifestyle change program. Welcome, Joanna. Thanks for having me, Rachel. So today we're going to talk about current conflicts in nutrition. And this is one that I'm sure we're not going to run out of anything to say. (laughs) Well, you know what, when I speak to, you know, whether it be a personal trainer, a fitness instructor or a member of the public, you know, most people tell me they're getting a bit confused. And so really, that's what this session is all about. It's about trying to unravel some of those levels of confusion and help translate the science into what should we be doing, both in the fitness industry, but also just for all of us in terms of how to live as healthily as we can. I once heard someone say that nutrition was, in the old days, carbs, protein and fat, and now it's a million other things. And then I guess with all the access to online information, people can just take up any diet they see and decide is it right for them, and maybe it's not right for them. Well, that's right. I think there's a tendency to to come to a conclusion about this is the diet, you know it's one diet fits all I've found the answer and you know my friend did this diet and has had great success therefore I should do it or a trainer who has great success or listens to a compelling symposium or or listens to a compelling presenter who sort of doctrinates them into one way of thinking and then it's easy to start trying to apply that one way of thinking to everyone and of course that's not the case and I think what's interesting about what you just said too is that nutrition science is actually still a very young science only last century we discovered the vitamins and minerals and what these what these chemicals do in our bodies. And we're just starting to unravel now a whole host of other uh, what we call phytochemicals or plant chemicals. And, and these are all things that are present in plant foods that have implications, good or bad, mostly good, for our health. So we're still learning more and more all of the time. So we very much have moved. I mean, that's one of the notable changes in, in nutrition guidelines over the last couple of years, is that we're very much moving away from that idea of talking fat, carbohydrate, protein. We still have to understand those things in the research world and in the science world. But in terms of translating it into practical advice for all of us living our daily lives, actually we've moved very much towards more of a whole food approach because it's dietary patterns and patterns of food intake that seem to be best associated with health rather than picking out individual nutrients or individual aspects of food. So I guess one of the ones that keeps popping up 
Is it food of the gods with medicinal properties or the ultimate saturated fat and artery blocker? You know, I'm talking about coconut oil. <laughs> a good old coconut. You know, you can't put a foot wrong if you're a coconut in the, in the nutrition and food world at the moment. We've got coconut water, coconut oil, coconut this, coconut that. You know, it's everywhere. And actually, you know, I live in, in Bondi and what I find is every cafe I seem to go in, they fry everything in coconut. It's driving me a little bit crazy because I really don't like my eggs fried in coconut. But if we just look back to the science, what's really interesting, this is a classic food that, that has jumped onto a little bit of research that's coming out and somehow done a brilliant job of marketing itself and, and the ripple effect that's gone around, uh, you know, certain circles. It's, it's not really all across Australia, but certainly in, in sort of health foodie circles, it's, it's become the oil to use. But interesting enough, when we actually look at what research is there and what evidence is there, I think we have wrongly demonized saturated fat, that's for sure. You know, the latest studies are showing we can't directly associate saturated fat with heart disease or, or, or with any other cardiovascular disease. But we do still have evidence that when we replace saturated fats with healthier fats, like the fat from extra virgin olive oil, for example, we get numerous other benefits. We get an extra virgin olive oil, for example, not only is it monounsaturated fat that seems to be supremely healthy for us, we're less likely to lay monounsaturated fat down as visceral fats, that's the fat around the middle that's most damaging to health. But extra virgin olive oil is also packed with a whole load of phytochemicals. So these are the things that help us, polyphenols that are antioxidants in our body and really very, very protective. It's got squalene that migrates mostly to the skin and seems to have an effect of reducing our risk of skin cancer. Now, you don't find any of these things in coconut oil. Then if we look at some of the claims, so some of the claims made are that, that it's full of MCTs, medium chain triglycerides, and that these are burnt off much more readily, increase your, your fat burning potential, and they're not going to be laid down as body fat. Well, in fact, coconut oil is primarily a 12 carbon chain fat. It's called lauric acid. And so it's bang in the middle. Some books will classify it as a medium chain fat. Some will classify it as a long chain fat. Certainly when I studied biochemistry, it was very much in that long chain. Now that's led to some of the confusion. But the bottom line is the research on true MCTs, which are the shorter chain fats down from lauric acid, they quite rightly, they are absorbed directly across from the gut and they are much more readily burned for energy. In fact, so much so we used to use them as a supplement for athletes until it was really shown that actually that wasn't really benefiting and, and giving athletes carbohydrate sources was, was actually much more effective. But that was why that was used in that way. Lauric acid doesn't. Lauric acid actually behaves much more like a long chain fat. So without confusing everyone with the chemistry, you can dig out your own chemistry books and have a reminder of the, of the way that fats work. But most fats have to be bundled up into to what's called a chylomicron to get a, across the gut wall and into the bloodstream. And 75%, so most of lauric acid behaves like that. So it actually behaves more like a long chain fat. So to me, chemically, scientifically, it's incorrect. We can't say and look on the research about MCTs and apply it to coconut oil. There are a few of those smaller chain fats in coconut oil, but really not, not very many at all. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to remember that all fats are energy dense. So even if you follow a low carb, high fat diet and you say, great, my body's burning a bigger ratio of fat, the bottom line is you've still got to burn the energy in the fat that you're eating before you can get to burning fat that's stored on your body. So I think sometimes that's forgotten. So for me, the bottom line with coconut oil is that 
It isn't any wonder. It's probably fairly neutral uh, in terms of health. It raises both your good and bad cholesterol if we want to look at it in terms of the effects on cholesterol. So I see it as being fairly neutral. If you particularly like it and it works in a recipe, you're doing a beautiful Thai curry, for example, by all means use coconut oil. But it doesn't have the charted evidence-based health effects that something like extra virgin olive oil um, sticks to. So, you know, that's what you'll find in my pantry over coconut oil every day. Well, you heard it here, folks. So the total fat matters. And yes, coconut fat is good for some things, but uh, we don't have to forget our olive oil all the time, which I'm glad to hear. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, the Mediterranean diet is what has an astounding amount of evidence behind it. And we're uncovering more and more and more. And, and, you know, that's one of the myths, things like, you know, the other thing I hear about coconut oil, it's a stable fat to cook with. Well, it is, but so is extra virgin olive oil. And in fact, we've got some really fabulous studies coming out of the States showing that when you cook your veggies in extra virgin olive oil, not only do you get the double whammy of the antioxidants and other beneficial compounds in the oil and in the veggies, somehow there's a sort of synergistic effect where you then absorb even more of them. So you get an even greater amount. So not only can you safely cook with extra virgin olive oil, you should because you're getting that double whammy benefit. And that might be one of the things that's so fabulous about the Mediterranean diet. Well, I'm old enough to remember the low-fat era. And (laughs) (laughs) And now, of course, we're in the low-carb era. Yes. Who got it right? Well, you know, why is it that it's one or the other? I love this sort of, it's like battle of, you know, it's like a boxing match between fat and carbohydrates. So to my eyes, I just see us making all the same mistakes again that we made in the low-fat era. You can have a really healthy low-fat diet. Just look at the traditional Japanese diet, for example. Or one of the things that I've been talking about here at Phylex is is a, a new study that just came out of, of these forager horticulturist group. So one of the sort of more native living groups in Bolivia called the Chimani people. And, you know, their diet is extremely low-fat, extremely high-carbohydrate, but from whole natural fibre-rich foods and they have been found to have the lowest level of cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis. It's it's virtually absent uh, from any of these people living these traditional lifestyles and so that's evidence that of course you can have a healthy low-fat diet. Where we went wrong with it was that we replaced that we became so you know demonizing about fat that we replaced it no matter we didn't think about the quality of what was replacing it so it was just as long as it's low fat that's what we want you saw that 99% fat free label on the packet of biscuits and went yoohoo I can eat as much as I like so we started eating low fat ice cream low fat biscuits low fat cakes low fat this low fat that and lo and behold we had this massive intake of refined carbohydrates So that's those refined grain products, too much added sugar and so on, and all sorts of other things that were used to replace the fat to try to give the texture and the mouthfeel and the the way that fat works in particular foods. So, you know, lo and behold, today we know that replacing fat, whether it's total fat or saturated fat with refined carbohydrates, leaves you in just as bad a place, if not worse. So now what we've done is instead of saying, hang on a minute, that actually wasn't what was intended at Tenerate with the original low-fat advice, we, instead of doing that, we now went, okay, it's not fat, bring back fat, let's blame the carbs. And guess what we're doing? We're doing exactly the same thing. We've now got a plethora of revolting, highly processed, low-carb foods that are now full of 
you know, commercialized uh, refined fats or processed protein. You know, why are these things any better for us? And yet we're still buying them. So we see low carb cookie and we still think, oh, I can eat as many cookies as I like. They're low carb. So we're ignoring total kilojoules. We're ignoring the quality of food. And what bothers me, the people who are the advocates for the low carb approach, always use studies that compare directly low carb with low fat. How about, and, and they do that purposefully, you know, they want to choose extreme diets at the ends of the spectrum in order to try to get a significant result. That's the nature of science research. Unfortunately, people don't want to say there was no significant difference because then it seems like your study didn't work. So my question to people is, well, how about comparing with a moderate fat, something like a Mediterranean diet? Why is there not a line in the middle where we can meet and we can actually start? And that's what I speak about on all of my programs. So my Get Lean program is very much about including quality carbs that I call smart carbs and including quality fats. So there are good fats like the extra virgin olive oil we were talking about, but also nuts, whole seeds, not seed oils, but and whole nuts and nut butters and so on and things like avocado. These are foods that naturally contain fats that are good for us, as long as they're, along with, sorry, a number of different nutrients. Similarly, the smart carbs are more your whole grains and legumes and starchy veg that are intact with the skin. Those are whole foods that have benefits beyond the carbs they contain. And what's really interesting is that when we look in nature, almost all carbohydrate containing foods, I mean, carbs are the, the fuel for the plants that, that have these carbs in them. Whether it's sugar or whether it's starch, that plant almost always also has fiber and fiber is very, very protective. So those kinds of foods are very, very different for us than carb plant rich foods that have been picked, you know, extracted the carbohydrate and turned it into refined white sugar or turned it into white flour that we then probably mixed with fat and with sugar and then created all these delicious, very energy dense foods that are very easy to overeat. So that's a totally different scenario. So I just encourage people to, to go back to actually thinking about the quality of the food itself instead of assessing and determining whether you're going to eat that food based on its carb or its fat or its protein content, really it's the overall quality of the food that's important. So it sounds to me there like if we shopped looking at a food, as it does it look like the food it's supposed to be? Is it mm. uh, close to its original source? We do a lot better than if we looked at clever labeling mm. that said 99% fat free or low carb, zero carb, all of that is. Yes, yeah? absolutely. You know, look beyond the, the front of the pack. I know that some people are, you know, consider themselves purists and will only eat, say, don't eat anything out of a box. I'm not like that. I'm a realist. You know, I'm a working mom and, and like other working parents, you know, sometimes it's a struggle to get enough food and be prepared and, and to put dinner on the table every night and have the school lunches ready for the, the kids the next day and so on and so on. So to me, packaged foods can be extremely useful, provided you're judicious about which ones that you buy. So, you know, most of us don't live in the country anymore where we can grow our own veggies and go hunting for our, you know, dinner. So using some packaged foods and using some convenience can help us to follow a healthier diet. But the best thing you can do is look past the front cover of the box, simply read the ingredients list, and that tells you what you need to know. Is it made from whole foods? Do you recognize that ingredients list as ingredients that you could purchase yourself and potentially, if you have the skills and the recipe, make that food product for yourself? That's your first sign of, is that worthy of going into my shopping basket or should I look for something else? And I guess the step on from this low carb is sugar, the enemy. 
so. Yeah. Is sugar our biggest problem? You know, we've got all these proponents of sugar-free, sugar-free. And I know if I watch on, there is differences in what is sugar-free for some people as opposed to others. Some people don't understand there would be sugar in fruit, you know, so mm. that doesn't mean that it's good or bad. It's the fruit has lots of nutrition, but they may yes. take it out, whereas other people don't. So given that there are all different interpretations of sugar-free, mm. is sugar our biggest problem? Well, actually, it's not our biggest problem here in Australia. There's sometimes a, too much of globalization or at least, you know, westernization. And we, we're dumping all countries in together. And often research that's coming out of America then gets applied to us here in Australia. And I see this time and time again. It, you know, it's happened with meat, for example. Our meat here in Australia is very, very different to the quality of the meat that they have in the States. Yet the same research is then applied to, to give us direction as to how much meat we could eat. And this is what I'm seeing at the moment with sugar. We've We've got very clear data and a number of different studies have now reinterpreted because people get all up in arms the minute you say this. The anti-sugar brigade don't like it for some reason, but the facts are that sugar intake is actually declining here in Australia. Australians are getting the message. And so I, I'm not going to be arguing about this. I'll show the data. In fact, I'm showing it here today. Why are we not celebrating and saying, fantastic, Australians are actually getting the message that too much added sugar is not good for us and that we need to cut down. We definitely need to cut down on sugar, sweet and soft drinks. And we've seen that. We see, we've seen quite a dramatic decline in soft drink consumption here in Australia. So to me, I'm celebrating. I think that's a really good thing. It's, it's a clear health message that's got out to the public and people are understanding that too much sugar sugar is not good for us. It's not the problem, though. It is part of the problem. So I'm not saying that sugar is not a problem at all. Of course it is, but it comes down to those food choices. So what we have to recognise is that there's sugars that are naturally present in foods, and indeed, there's sugar running in our bloodstream, and we would die without it. So to blanket sugar is bad or sugar is toxic, to me as a nutrition scientist, that's just nonsensical. What they're really meaning is that when we've taken sugar out of a plant, and sugar again is just the carbides, the fuel for that plant to grow. And now it doesn't matter what plant you extract it from, whether it's a coconut palm, or whether it's a, a sugar cane, or whether it's sugar beet, or whether it's a parsnip, and you extract that sugar and you chuck the rest of the plant away, including that protective fibre that we spoke about before, that's, that's um, refined sugar. And then that is added into all sorts of other foods. So there's the first thing that's frustrating me at the moment, that people are buying things like coconut sugar, thinking that's much healthier for me. And it's marketed as being healthier. It's about 20 times the price, but it's simply sugar extracted from a different plant. It's that coconut word with its health halo around it, making people think that's a healthier choice. The next thing I see are recipes and food products that are labeled sugar-free, but when you read the ingredients list, they have things like brown rice syrup, or sometimes it's called rice malt syrup. Again, that is sugar extracted and refined from the process of, of, of turning uh, rice into to white rice. And it's the sugars extracted. Now, there's not a lot of sugar in brown rice. So you can imagine that it's really a byproduct of, of the, the rice processing. And it's sugar. So again, it's a sugar and it's extremely high glycemic index. It's really like adding almost pure glucose into your food. Yet people are making this dessert recipe and saying it's sugar-free and it's incredibly energy dense. And it's not going to be helping anyone with weight control. So there's those confusions around sugar. So I like to take it back to people 
once again, of talking about the actual food. Now, if you've got something like an apple or a banana or any other piece of fruit, the sugars that are naturally present in that fruit are accompanied with the fiber is all still there. So that fiber makes your body work hard to, to break down those plant cell walls and to get at the carbohydrates, those sugars, and absorb them. And the food comes as a complete nutrition package with a whole load of nutrients and phytochemicals alongside. That's a totally different thing to having an apple-flavoured lolly or a raspberry-flavoured lolly. Those things are pretty much pure glucose that have an extremely high glycemic index. You're, you're, you're going to get a big rise in your blood glucose levels. There's no fibre and there's no nutrients attached. So you can see that those foods are, are very, very different. Where I think it gets a little bit more confusing to people are foods that lie in the middle. So let's say, for example, we make some healthy muffins at home and we use whole grain flour and we put some nuts in there and we put in some berries and we use our extra virgin olive oil as the fat source. Now, what do we do to sweeten our muffin? If I use a little bit of sugar or I use maple syrup, I use honey, is that end food a healthy food? Now, I say look at the food as a whole. Look at what nutrition it has to offer you. And while that might not be a food that we should eat every single day, it is a healthier version of a treat compared to a muffin made with white flour, you know, loads of sugar and, and a wrong kind of fat, you know, vegetable oil or something like that. So we can clearly see that there's a difference. So that's what we have to start to recognise, that a little bit of sugar in your diet is absolutely fine. The World Health Organization suggests 12 teaspoonfuls a day. Potentially, there's benefit, particularly for dental health, of cutting down to six teaspoonfuls a day. And I think that's a very good rough guide. So if you're having the odd sweet treat, absolutely fine. But if you're drinking soft drinks and you're eating biscuits and cakes and things every day, then clearly those are the foods that you want to concentrate on cutting out. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear what you said about Australia has reduced its sugar intake because that's a message that has obviously got lost and we should be celebrating those little gains. I mean, absolutely. each one of them is important, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not really sure why that, that so many people who are on that anti-sugar campaign, it's almost like they've become so embroiled in their message that, that they're not celebrating that the message is actually getting across. It's because, you know, it doesn't quite fit with their argument that if sugar intakes are declining, obesity is still increasing. You know, sugar can't be the cause of obesity as part and parcel of the picture. And I think that's what we have to understand. So sometimes people become so passionate about whatever their particular message is that they sometimes forget to just step back and look at the bigger picture. And that's what we have to do. So I just encourage people to, to just be careful that you don't get so swept along with whether it's sugar or whether it's gluten or whether it's grains or whether it's step back and look at the big picture and think, you know, when we look collectively at the last nutrition survey and we look at what the average Australian is eating, more than a third of their energy, their calories or, or kilojoules, we should be switching from calories to kilojoules today. So the third, more than a third is coming from junk food and alcohol. So, you know, that gives us a really clear picture and only 7% of adults were eating the recommended amount of vegetables. So what do we, not only is that not good, of course, because we're not getting the protection of what's in the veggies, but what are we eating instead? And so that really gives us a kick up the bum, I think, to say, hang on a minute, let's look at the obvious stuff first. Eating too much, eating on the run, eating habits are, are, are appalling a lot of the time in this sort of fast-paced, busy life. We don't give priority to meals and lots of people are just simply eating what dietitians call discretionary food. That's food that doesn't give us any or very little nutrition, but it's giving us lots of kilojoules. So, you know, put your focus there first before you start sort of trying to, to, to get too complicated and look at just one aspect of food. 
But that actually brings me into another important point. And I guess this is important in terms of weight loss, if that's what someone wants to do, but also in terms of health, which I wish there was Mm. more concentration on. Does it matter where the kilojoules are coming from? Mm. Like if someone only has a thousand kilojoules a day, but it's from really low nutrition sources, that's not great, is it? As opposed to someone who eats great nutrition sources food, but eats a little bit too much. Well, that's right. It, it does matter where the kilojoules come, come from. Where the kilojoules come from, whether it be from fats, from carbohydrates, from alcohol or from, from proteins, that has an impact on our metabolism. So protein, for example, one of the reasons why a slightly higher protein diet can, has been shown to be effective for most people for weight control and for keeping weight off is that actually it takes us a bit more energy to digest and metabolize and deal with that protein than it does for carbs or, or for fat. So that's a benefit of of protein. It also matters uh, the combination of foods that we eat and all of these things have an impact on what happens to those kilojoules once they're in our body. How much does it take to burn them off? How much energy does it take to convert them? It doesn't really take much to to digest fat, translate it and, and send it off to, we don't need it for immediate energy. So, you know, pack it into the adipose tissue and store it. That doesn't take much energy. But to convert carbs or protein into fat to store actually does take energy. So all of these things can add up over time. And so so it does matter where the kilojoules come from. To go back to what you were talking about there, it also depends on, yes, your energy requirements. So someone who's got very large energy requirements, a bigger person with lots of muscle who's very, very active, for example, they've got more room to to move. Of course, they need more nutrients as well as more kilojoules, but they can probably afford more to have the odd treat or the odd low nutrient food because they've got all those kilojoules to play with. But someone who's trying to lose some body fat and who works at a desk and is largely sedentary for most of the day, well, that person doesn't have many kilojoules to play with. So they really need to be more uh, stricter, I guess, with making sure that those foods are really nutritious choices. And there's less room for snacks and treats and, and the little extras in there. So it's one reason to get moving a bit more often, but it's another reason for really thinking about the nutrient density of the foods that you're eating, not just the kilojoules. So I still talk about proteins, carbs and fats, more correctly, protein-rich foods, carb-rich foods, fat-rich foods, because of course, most foods are a mixture of all three of those macronutrients. And it is helpful. I use it in my what I call my Dr. Joanna plate, which is my template for teaching people how to get the right balance of of nutrients on their plate, just so that you know that you're getting ample protein in each meal to help with appetite control, to help you to eat less. Low GI carbohydrates are what I call my smart carbs, and that's to give you your fiber, to give you those good carbs, the good energy, but in an appropriate portion, to give you your good fats. And most of the plate is actually veggies, perhaps with a little fruit, depending on the meal. So, so that is the, the, you know, the way that I use those macronutrients to start teaching people about getting that really nice balance on the plate so we don't have any too much or not enough of any one. Yeah, it's, I guess for my next question, I'm, I'm really interested to hear your answer to this because, again, I see it as a bit of a, a duel between the health side and the weight management side Mm. in that if someone was a soda drinker and they're cutting down their sugar so they go to a diet soda they've got rid of the extra kilojoules they've got rid of the extra sugar but now they're getting a whole load of I don't even think we can call them ingredients so shall we call them chemicals yeah yeah. yeah. and I mean what is your view on that have they taken a step in the right direction or Mm. have they not well yeah look it's a really interesting thing that you raise first of all between weight control and health and I think that's 
a really, it's something I talk about all the time because people forget that. I always remind people, you know, whether you're overweight or underweight is a very visible sign to everyone else that you've got your diet and lifestyle out of whack or something's going on that's that, that's preventing you from, from being in that healthy weight. Now, of course, you can be overweight and be very, very fit and metabolically much healthier than someone who looks like they're a healthy weight but are not healthy inside or not me metabolically healthy. So I always remind people it's very important not to, don't sit back in your laurels if you're a healthy weight and think, well, I don't have to worry about what I eat and drink. I can do what I like because that's not... You know, none of those uh, people you can look at from the outside and tell whether they're metabolically healthy from the inside. So you're absolutely right. We do need to have, and all of my programs have a firm focus on health. And what actually I believe is if you do the right things for your health, so we kind of work from the inside out, you know, the knock-on effect is that you probably will find your body will shift and you'll be at a healthier weight. You probably will find that you look better. You will certainly find that you feel better almost immediately. You know, when we do the right things in terms of diet and, and our lifestyle choices, you feel immediately better. And that's one of the most powerful motivating factors that there is. So I think especially for the fitness industry, you know, and I've worked in this industry for many, many years now, you know, we really have to keep working at shifting the emphasis away from the aesthetic and what we look like to actually be in what is going on with health on the inside. So to go back to your question about the soda, then yes, you know, there's no doubt, in my mind anyway, that a move from a, a sugar-containing, sugar-sweetened soft drink to the diet version is a step in the right direction, but this is still not a healthy product. And in fact, what's really interesting, I'm working a project at the moment that is looking at the gut microbiome and the effects there. And this is starting to, to perhaps provide some answers why, you know, when we look at the epidemiological research or looking broadly at populations, people who consume diet drinks, it doesn't tend to help with their weight control. And we know it's certainly not good for health. It's certainly not good for dental health. It's still eroding your teeth. You know, all of those soft drinks, whether they're diet or not, are extremely acidic and erode the enamel on, on teeth. So for dental health, they're an absolute nightmare, not to mention, you know, the world of artificial sweeteners is a is a complicated one because we've got safety trials galore saying it's okay at these particular levels, you know, nothing's wrong with this. But when we look at the gut microbiome, this is where we are starting to see some of the effects. So artificial sweeteners and other additives in our foods can have an impact on the gut microbiome. And we're starting to think of the gut microbiome, it could be up to two kilograms of, of bugs that are living in our gut, primarily in the, in the colon. And they're almost like another organ. So, so some researchers in the area are calling it an organ. We have evolved together to, with these bugs in our systems and they benefit from us, from having a home and having food delivered to them, having a place to live, the perfect environment. But we also benefit from them if we have the right populations and the right diversity of bacterial populations present. So what we're starting to understand in relation to both our health and to our weight control is that the diversity and the types of bugs that are there can actually make a big impact. And so some of these diet choices and some of the lifestyle choices that we're making might well be explaining why one person seemingly can overeat and never put on a pound and someone else is just really struggles with their weight. It might well be down to what's going on with the gut microbiome. So this is a fascinating area of research that we're just at the tip of the iceberg and understanding what can go on and how we can manipulate our, our gut to help us to have the best health and to help us with our weight control. But we're getting there and, and the technology and the understanding of how to do that is what we're going to see come our way over the next few years.
Yes, I mean, that one is, um, we need a whole nother podcast for that one, don't we? we? Do. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a few days to talk about microbiome. Yeah. But meanwhile, I'd just like to finish off and maybe talking about some of the more strict, extreme eating patterns that have kind of um, gained momentum over the last few years. And I'm thinking like vegan diets to me were an ethical choice in the past. Maybe now there's a sustainability factor. And then of course, some personalities in the media have brought to the forefront the old paleo diet. So um, I'm sure we'd love to hear your thoughts (laughs) on these. (laughs) Well, you know, the funny thing about paleo and vegan diets are, you know, on first glance, it seems as if they're polar apart, you know, one at the end of each of the spectrum, We've got vegans over here and we've got paleo people over here with lots of meat. So lots of plant food, lots of meat. But actually, there are a lot of commonalities between those two diets. Largely, you know, if they're if they're following them correctly, they're not eating junk foods. They they're they're generally got lots of plant food. If you're doing a paleo diet correctly, then you know they've got lots and lots of plant food, lots and lots of veggies. But they add their wild salmon and their grass fed meats, and these guys add their tofu and their legumes and beans. So you know there are some commonalities, and there is some good research behind both of those approaches. However, you know, if we talk vegan, first of all, to me, it still is largely an ethical choice to make that, that decision to go fully vegan. I encourage everybody, regardless, and I'm, I'm a meat eater, but I encourage all of us, whether you're a meat eater or not, to eat much more plant food. That's what we all have to do. So there's certainly some benefits to vegans, but what vegans can't get, there's some things that you just cannot get from plant foods. The long chain omega-3s, for example, that we get in fish. Vitamin B12 is only found in animal foods. And we don't get some particular amino acids and things like taurine you don't get in any any great extent, although we can make it in our bodies. So you can follow a really healthy vegan diet, but you've got to think about it a little bit more. And at least B12 and the long-chain omega-3s are two supplements that I would recommend. So you can get an algal source long-chain omega-3 that's suitable for vegans. So the reality is for most people that that's pretty difficult and it can be hard to meet iron and calcium and zinc and so on requirements. So a bit of care is required with that. At the other end of the scale for the paleo guys, you know, I studied this as part of my PhD. So some of that discussion is is in my PhD thesis all those years ago. No one was interested back then. (laughs) From a research perspective, of course, it's interesting to look at how things have evolved. But, you know, we don't have one paleo diet. There were actually many versions of a paleo diet, depending on where the, the human group was in the world, depending on the season and so on. So Actually, true paleo diets were not very low carb. They were extremely high in fiber, something like three times at least the amount of fiber that we currently recommend, never mind what people are actually eating. So we did eat a huge amount of of plant food. And there's debate between the researchers of this area when we started to eat grains and so on. And the last thing to say about that is that epigenetics has taught us that we're continuing to evolve and epigenetics allows us, this is the, the way that we change the expression of our genes. So whether genes are ramped up or down or turned on or off, that allows us to adapt much more quickly to our environment and to our diet than, than if we just had our rock solid genes that we cannot change. And so the whole paleo premise that we should be eating the way we did, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago is kind of flawed by understanding that For example, if you're like me and your ancestors come from Europe, 80% of us have changed the expression of our gene to be able to still produce the enzyme lactase that breaks down the type of carbohydrate that's in milk. So we don't have lactose intolerance. But if you come from certain other parts of the world, like Asia, 
it's much more likely that you have not yet had those epigenetic changes that allow you to break down lactose. So for my ancestors, it was clearly a genetic advantage. It was a survival advantage to be able to process dairy foods. So, you know, to me, uh, looking at evolutionary nutrition is incredibly interesting. As a nutrition science, that's fascinating. And it can provide some clues as to what we should be doing today. But we have to understand that we are still evolving, we are still adapting. And to me, it's just astounding that the human race is so adaptable to many different diets, provided we have essentially whole foods and that we meet our nutrient requirements. And the last thing before we leave paleo is just to, you know, it does frustrate me that it too is becoming a marketing term. So when I see a packaged bar or a raw cake that's got about 3,000 kilojoules a slice and it calls itself paleo, (laughs) I get frustrated. And I go, it's not paleo just because it's made with coconut oil and avocado and raw cacao. That doesn't make it a paleo food. Paleo man and women were not sitting down to highly energy dense raw cakes or little bars and so on. So, you know, I just think it's being manipulated and it's being marketed as a way of, of trying to sort of put a healthy halo over some foods. So, folks, I think we just need to watch the marketing. Joanna, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I know I have learned a lot and I'm sure all our listeners have. So thank you. Thanks so much. Lovely speaking to you, Rachel. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on the Fitness Industry Podcast. For a range of online nutrition courses, including Conflicts in Nutrition by Dr. Joanna McMillan, head to the Network website. And remember, Network members make big savings on this and all other courses offered by Network. Go to fitnessnetwork.com.au slash CECs today to grow your nutrition know-how and fitness career.